Since the dawn of civilization, humans have endeavored to become stronger and faster. From the invention of the wheel to today, history is replete with men and women who have applied innovation to fitness. But in the past 50 years, while millions have made livings in this industry, a select few have taken that passion to the highest level, creating brands and products known across the globe. Today we celebrate these pioneers, for they are the Gym Class Heroes. All right, welcome to Gym Class Heroes, presented by Athletic Business Magazine and the iClubs Conference. Coming to you November 20th through 22nd, 2013 in San Diego, California, where you will find strategies for independent clubs. And you might also shake the hand of the incredible Irvin Magic Johnson, keynote speaker for the event. And potential interviewee for Gym Class Heroes. Potential Gym Class Heroes of Fitness interviewee. We're very excited that that could be a possibility. But uh, we don't want to let people down <laughs> when that doesn't work out. Um, but we're do you know talking... who is bigger than? Do you know who is bigger than uh, Magic Johnson and who's agreed to be interviewed? Who's that? Tim. Tim Rohde. He's on the call right now, <laughs> so, and he cannot Tim escape. <laughs> Tim, how you doing how you today? Better have your and He can check. dunk. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you guys haven't seen me play basketball or seen me. Period. But uh, thank you for having me. I'm flattered. Yeah, very cool. I got to say, I'm excited to hear all about your your work with um, Mac Maryland Athletic Club. Everything you've done, sort of how you've taken it. Uh, you started the organization 1996, had a vision. It's carried through. You've become a fixture in the state of Maryland in many ways. But I have got to tell you, I'm a little disappointed in one thing. Uh, Hossein knew you already, so he knew what to expect. I was expecting a heavy Baltimore accent, and I'm getting none of that. <laughs> no, I'm imported. You're imported. This is this transplanted. Is, maybe the better way to put it. Transplant. <laughs> Where are you transplanted from? Well, before before actually, I came to Baltimore, actually, if you don't mind, Tim, let me let me let me ask that question again. Where are you transplanted from, Hun? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be the appropriate question. So we. Um, uh, I had been working in Silver Spring for about uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, for about seven or eight years prior to coming to Baltimore. But before that, I lived in Oregon for eight years, and and before that, was uh, born and raised in Wisconsin. Oh so wow! So no Baltimore accent for me. Yeah. None at all. I'm so I mean, I was so excited for our audience to hear a true Baltimore going down at a shore, going to watch Dio's game accent. And unfortunately, <laughs> I'm the guy who has to provide it now. Well, so, you can fill in the gap. Now. I will do what I can. So Oregon, not the first person we've talked to who spent some time in Oregon. What were you doing out there? You know, I moved out there after school uh, just for adventure. I was, you know, I loved the ski and the, I loved the wilderness and I was enamored with it. And I wound up taking a trip out there. And a few months later, I just packed up everything I had and moved from Wisconsin to the West Coast and started making my way out there. No kidding. How old were you? Um, I was about 21 at the time, and um, I wound up uh, doing some work in, uh, as an apprentice in commercial construction, and then I got into the ski business. I became a ski instructor and a, and a manager at a local ski shop, and, and uh, I wound up spending seven or eight years in the ski industry there as well as, as, well as continuing some construction and, uh, experience. So you hadn't that, done anything in fitness yet? 
No. In fact, um, started a ski conditioning and ski training program that ultimately um, got its debut in in a struggling tennis and racquetball club. This was in the early 80s. And so there had been a proliferation of, of racquetball clubs started. Um, this was just, just prior to or right about the time that URSA started. And then a recession set in in the early 80s, and a lot of the clubs were were struggling um, because there there just wasn't a lot of activity there. So we were able to find a tennis and racquetball club that that uh, wanted our ski conditioning program, and so that was really my my first exposure to the industry. Worked in that facility and became a, a you know pretty successful uh, ski conditioning program there in Portland for about four or five years when we decided to start marketing it to other health clubs that had racket space, whether it's racquetball or, or tennis court space that was being underutilized. So take me back even earlier, growing up in Wisconsin. I mean, did you, what, what did you think you were going to be doing? Cause you certainly seem to have taken an interesting path. Well, you know, it's, uh, out of school, I studied engineering and went to Northwestern university and did a, did a number of different things there. Um, and you know, played some music and did some things, but then I just uh, I just kind of got the desire to explore, and that's when I moved out to Oregon. So um, you know, it's it it wasn't uh, it wasn't a youth that was raised in sports and fitness that that sort of led me to the industry. I wound up opening my first business inside of a health club, and then as that started to grow, I was I was doing an installation for um, a duplicate uh, indoor ski training and ski conditioning program in Silver Spring when the general manager left that club on, on short notice. And um, I had gotten familiar with her in the program. I'd been out there for a couple of weeks or maybe close to a month, and she recommended to the owner that, that, that he use me to run the club till he could find a replacement. And so what started out as a 60-day um, commitment, because I had to be there anyway, uh, wound up turning into a seven-year partnership. So wow. I just applied... I applied some of the things that I had learned from this struggling health club in Portland and some of the things I had seen going on in that facility to help, uh, to help with this particular club out in Silver Spring. So this is what I just heard. You were playing music, <laughs> living in the wilderness, being a ski bum for seven years. Is that, is that an accurate prescription, a description of some of the things you were doing while you were out there? That's probably that's pretty close. <laughs> that but sounds the, like that literally sounds like every college kid's dream, right? There. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a retirement. Unless, yeah. Unless the unless the the uh, unless the instrument was like the French horn. No. No. What's the guitar? French horn? Bass. Bass. Drums. 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 Oh, man. oh nice. Oh, it relates to fitness. Got to have rhythm. Got to keep everything going. Everybody moving at the right speed. Has anybody ever told you that? Maybe <laughs> am I bringing that to your attention? You know, I learned I learned a lot playing playing in the band. Um, I had a band that that played and toured around the Midwest for about four or five years, and I learned a lot during that process. I learned I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about uh, responsibility. Um, you know, just there was there were a lot of lessons to be learned during those days. Like what? Uh, I was fortunate. What are some well, of the things you picked up on um, that? You know, just uh, how to get a group of people to work together and collaborate. You know, musicians aren't necessarily the most reliable or or uh, self-starter group of people out there, and 
you know, getting getting the, the the band to work as a business where we had you know enough enough dates booked and showed up and pleased the pro the group and practiced. I mean, there just where there were a lot of facets of it. You know, I, I'm not sure that I could have told you at the time that I was building um, you know skills or experience uh, as a leader or a coordinator or facilitator, but that certainly in hindsight is had you know made a major contribution to it. Cool. And then, um, and, you know, it's funny thinking ahead to where you sort of how you guys started um, uh, Mac and looking at, you know, the story being that in 96, you look at this big warehouse in Timonium, an empty warehouse and say, well, this is this is eventually what I where my dream is going to be starting. But um, your background in construction. Um, you know, I, I, I constantly hear it with, with people starting fitness facilities and gyms and, you, you know, the, the real estate aspect of it is such a scary part and confusing and build outs and, and, uh, what they're going to be up against there. Was that not, did you learn a lot from that construction side that you were able to apply to the build out phase? Absolutely. I use it to this day. Um, the work, the, the lessons that I learned as an apprentice carpenter and then a journeyman and, and uh, working closely with with um, project foremen and and project managers and uh, it was it was just indispensable. I still learn when I work with those guys. But we, you know, for example, when we were starting the Mac here in Timonium, um, we acted as our own general contractor for you know for two reasons. One is is uh, we didn't have the we didn't have the budget to go out and hire a company to build this facility out, and and two we. We um, well, there maybe were three reasons. One, you know, two was that we were kind of making it up as we went along, and three was that we could because of because of my background in in commercial construction. So, you know, there were there were admittedly things that I was weak on, and then we'd go find some help in those categories. So, but the bottom line was we were able to open this facility for about a million dollars in 1996. That was with a full conversion. You know, we negotiated the landlord to do some work, and uh, which he did not very well, but he did. And then the, the rest of the work we did ourselves, and so our basis was really low. And I, I learned that lesson in hindsight more than foresight. And we did it out of, you know, it was the only option we had. But in hindsight, you know, one of the reasons we had such exceptional return on investment in those early years was that we had a very small investment. Mm -hmm. You know, nowadays people spend 10, 20 million dollars opening a new facility. And I just, I wonder how on earth they're, you know, how long it's going to be before they get, see some kind of a return on that. And with, you know, in our industry in particular, you get, we oftentimes, um, and, and Lee alluded to it earlier about how a lot of personal trainers or people who work at gym, they aspire to, uh, to open their own facility. What's a piece of real estate construction advice you'd give them if you could only say one thing to them, hey, this is what you got to be aware of when you're building a facility or picking a facility. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we, we assess facilities in between running that club and, and, um, in silver spring and starting the Mac, uh, Liz and I actually had our own consulting firm and we traveled around the United States and overseas for three or four years, helping other clubs, other club operators. And we got a chance to see a lot of, a lot of facilities, and we actually were schooled by some of the industry's best people on doing market feasibility studies. And in the end, we really we boiled it down to three things, three attributes that we look for in a facility. Um, it's got to be in a good, you know, it's got to be in a good market, preferably a great market. And in order to do that, you got to know 
your target audience and who the market is in the geographic area around you. But um, the second thing is that the facility needs to be visible and it needs to be accessible. And if you, if you come up short on any of those three, be prepared to work harder for as long as you're in that facility. So that, those are the three variables that we assess when we look at sites. The one that we opened here in Timonium is an A on all three accounts, and I can tell you that, that this location has worked for us uh, every day since we opened it 17 years ago, not the other way around. Now, we since have opened two more clubs, and we rationalized um, something less than an A grade on one or more of those variables, and and as a result, those locations have been more of a challenge. They've taken more work to get going. So, you know, your question is a great one, and I would say, you know, it's it's one thing to just blurt out the old truism, location, location, location. But how do you quantify that? How do you how do you advise somebody? What what attributes of a location do you look for? And to to us, those are the big three. How's the market? In meaning, are they the right age, the right demographic? Is, are there enough of them left? How much competition is in the market? And then accessibility and visibility. I, I could I could name clubs around the country that we're familiar with that have two of those three things going for them, but they're short on one of the three. And as a result, you know they've they've struggled in some cases greatly or continue to struggle. Hmm. So um, so in 1996. You you decide to move to you decide to become the entrepreneur. You launch uh, you launch the club, but you were consulting. Well, tell me a little bit about what kind of consulting you were doing. Well, when um, when I was working at the Aspen Hill Club, I had an opportunity over the six or seven years there to try a lot of things. My my primary source of inspiration and ideas was Ursa, and I also joined the roundtable, got involved with MACMA, just kind of got immersed in the industry. Once I made the transition from ski conditioning to health club management and and just started applying the things that that my mentors or some of the industry founders were espousing at the Ursa conventions and they were they were working that combined with some of the lessons I'd learned in my own life whether it was in um, you know in music or in in construction or whatever just by working with people and trying to bring out the best a lot of our stuff was working the Aspen Hill Club start went from losing money to making money um, I don't know whether you want to name that club or not. It might be better off just to keep that anonymous. But um, the uh, those things started working, and I started I started speaking or getting requested to speak at the industry conferences, which led to requests for consulting. Which initially I didn't really know how to handle. I didn't know how to field. I didn't see myself as a consultant. I saw myself as a guy who was, you know, trying to survive and trying to thrive and trying to help somebody do you know get their business to work. I was I was just you know, sort of like a, a paid employee trying to trying to help something work. So I I responded to a few of these requests and and the consulting and speaking engagements invitations continued to come in. So I eventually um, left that partnership in in Silver Spring and just went to consulting full time. That was about the, the time that I met Liz. Uh, she had been managing a group of clubs up here in Baltimore, and so the two of us started traveling and, and consulting. And, and I can tell you that we learned we learned as much from we learned as much from the people we were helping as I think we were teaching them. So mm -hmm. just that you know getting the opportunity to see how business is done in different parts of the country or overseas in Australia or the UK, you know, was was very enlightening. 
during that time too, I served a term on the URSA Board of Directors, and I got the opportunity to not only be on the, the Strategic Planning Committee for three or four years, but I actually chaired it for a year. And talk about working with some brilliant people and visionaries and some of the consultants that URSA brought in to help us track uh, and project where the industry was going globally was tremendously insightful. All of that information kind of gave us a, uh, it gave us a basis. It gave us a sorry, food for thought for where, you know, where we, where not only where we, how we could help our clients, but, you know, four years of traveling and consulting, we started thinking, geez, you know, it's nice helping these people get their businesses to run better. If maybe if we started a club of our own, we could create one that didn't have all these problems and it would work for us instead of just having to rely on the next consulting project. So that was, it was during the travel time and, and the in-between projects time that we started to create the concept of, of the Mac. I love that because you're doing, you know, not enough people do market research. So you talked about a market feasibility study, but it sounds like you spent four or five years as a consultant being out there basically doing market research. I mean, you're looking at what people have to say. You're getting insights. You're not just going into this blindly like I want to open a gym and it's going to have this and it's going to look like this. But it was what are people doing around the world? What, what can I take from talking to other people in this industry so that I can bring that together to gain insight onto an idea that may not already be in the industry, which seems kind of like what what you were trying to do with wellness. Because I was talking to Liz about it, and she was telling me that that wellness idea, which kind of is very common now and is getting out there, was pretty innovative for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. It was in 1996. The only people talking about wellness were the URSA convention attendees. It had been part of the discussion there for several years, but it wasn't it wasn't mainstream. It wasn't part of pop culture. And we um, we we had kind of narrowed down four different business models that we thought had viable futures. This was in 1994, 95, in the years leading up to the launch of the Mac. Um, we we had uh, we had it sort of narrowed down to uh, women's only facilities, which my wife had experience running. Um, uh, what we, the concept we would call now a fitness warehouse, where you just we'd seen these emerging, just great big buildings filled with equipment that were convincing anybody that walked in and took a look at this was floored at the variety and depth of exercise opportunities and convinced themselves that they should join. Uh, then there were also family fitness centers, you know, uh, the, sort of the Bel Air Athletic Club style, where you know that served as sort of the local community center. Those were viable, but had a pretty high basis. Took a lot of real estate big buildings and facilities. And then there was this concept called wellness and to create a wellness center. And, you know, back then there was no sort of mainstream definition of wellness and there was no norm for a wellness facility. We saw them everywhere from, um, you know, ho sterile hospital type facilities to um, the few that were operating. Some of them were, were fringe operations with acupuncture and aromatherapy and things. So we saw a little more of a mainstream thing. And ultimately when, before we settled on our business model, we started looking for sites. And we looked at more than 30 facilities over a three-year period and actually did market research on 30 facilities in a five or six county area here around Baltimore. And my wife knew that she wanted to stay in the Baltimore area, so we would look at when we got an idea or we saw an empty grocery store or a location somewhere, we would go out do the drive time analysis. We would 
get the demographics um, and and kind of estimate the potential of each site. And we turned down 29 sites over a three-year period before we opted for the one that we're in today. Hmm. And that, that was a good call. I mean, we were patient. Uh, we learned a lot in the process. And, um, and then when we finally saw this facility, we said, you know what, it's perfect for a fusion of two of those business models. The fitness warehouse merged with merged with the wellness concept. Mm. So this area lacked it lacked a large multi-purpose health club. So the the market that we were in uh, didn't have anything with a, there was no full court gymnasiums except in some grade schools or um, you know there was no there was I think there was maybe one basketball court in the whole area. There were no swimming pools indoors except at one or two universities. So clearly the the large fitness warehouse concept in, uh, was going to work. But then we put the wellness basis behind it and decided to help people with things like nutrition and lifestyle, and it turned out to be a good decision. So you've opened, since, since the Timonium location, you've opened more locations. Are any of the new locations in one of those 29 other locations that you uh, said no to initially? Um, not really. Our, our our express club that's a few miles north of our Timonium facility is, we we looked at a couple of sites out there, but uh, nothing wound up being in exactly the same place. Mm -hmm. So I, I know my question is, who who's the boss, right? I mean, you've got, you've got to just answer the question. I mean, at some point, someone, is it, are you and Liz so much on the same page that you guys sort of see something and you both agree to it? Or as... I suspect Liz is actually in charge, and really she should be the one we're interviewing today. I think you should call Liz. Would you like me to give her your, her number? I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid right now, and I'll deny everything. We just tend to get yelled at by wives, yeah. even if they're not our own, so yeah. we want to avoid that at all costs. You know, it's really been a collaboration, and I, and I would tell you, and we get asked that question a lot, but I would tell you that the answer, you know, on who's the boss is it depends. It depends on the subject. Sometimes it's her. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's us, and uh, and most of the time we agree on which one of those three it is. Sometimes <laughs> not. Sometimes you you got to negotiate for <laughs> for who's in charge. Right. Sometimes she's well, right, and sometimes you agree that she's right. <laughs> is that is that how that works? <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, but she was. I, I, you got you got you got to ask the follow up question. When did you disagree about something? I want to know how you. I mean, with partnerships and and a lot of a lot of right, guys. Because you work with uh, people may not know you work with your brother. I mean, you and your brother founded this, so you've got that sort of dynamic going on. Uh, so continue what you're, you're going to ask, but I think it's important to preface that yeah, question. So obviously, you know, my joke with uh, with everybody because I work with Al here at MotionSoft is that. Uh, he's the CEO because my mom decided to give birth to him first. Right. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, my mom made my decision for me. But uh, so I, I and, and when we when we have this, uh, we have disagreements, it's a little bit different because we have like big brother, little brother disagreements and we try to resolve them the exact same way. And it's a little bit awkward when you fight and slap each other in the office. <laughs> but. but but that's you a know, clean way to settle something. That is. It is. It, it really is. It, it, get, they call social services on you. <laughs> that's true. But, but I, I am curious. I want to know about uh, – I mean how do you guys, when you do have a disagreement, what, tell us about a disagreement you had 
and that you and how it was resolved and sort of without uh, obviously you're still married you're still happily married um, so I'm curious to know how you guys do it because it's, I don't think it's, it's uncommon it's, I don't think this is uncommon yeah. I think it seems like a lot of facilities are run by husband wives teams yeah absolutely um, you know it's I'm trying to think of a specific situation um, but you know the the way it typically goes, I mean, there are things that that she defers to me on that are that we've we've operated for 17 years. Like, hey, these are your strengths, and you're the lead on this. She doesn't hesitate to weigh in on those, and vice versa. There's things that she's the lead on. Like, I I don't I don't try to make a final decision on anything having to do with our Group X program. That's clearly her. That's in her wheelhouse, and you know, I may give her my insight or my opinion, but ultimately she can make that decision. If I think that we're heading in the wrong direction or that, you know, maybe she's missing something or that we need to make a change, I'll let her know. But, you know, ultimately she makes the final call there. I do. I take the we're lead not gonna on get marketing. A specific, we're not going to get a specific answer well, here, are we, Tim? <laughs> I, I'm, try, I'm not trying to avoid it. I'm just trying to think because this goes on all the time. And, yeah. and uh, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's daily, but, um, you know, there there are things that I have the lead on, and she she gives me her opinion, and then I'll make the final call. If I'm you, if I feel strongly about it, I'll I'll go with with what I believe, and and uh, and if if not, I'll take input, and sometimes I'll wait. So, do you ever um, um do you ever think it's uh is it does the question become uh is it ever weird for your employees? And that like I think of my daughter, my five year old daughter who wants an answer for me and doesn't get it and then goes to my wife yeah. and gets the yeah. answer she wanted. Oh, sure. It's like, I mean, do employees oh, go to time. you and then go to Liz or vice versa or not know which one oh, yeah. to listen to? No, that happens all the time. And, yeah. and look, you know, Liz and I are aware of our differences. We, we have a different tolerance for risk. We have a different tolerance for, um, you know, uh, fiscal limits. We've got, we treat people differently. Um, and so, you know, there are, there are things that I would, would or wouldn't do with, with team members that she would or wouldn't do. And so it's, it's not, um, it's not like we're always in lockstep. So, um, you know, it's just sort of a, sort of a constant give and take. I, I would say that if you talk with any of the long-term couples that are operating this business, and I, I know some of the ones you're referring to, they're good friends of ours. Uh, I would bet that they, that they kind of manage things similarly. It's, it's not, um, it's not, uh, you know, sort of a number one and number two, it's sort of a give and take. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's worked. It, it's worked for us. And, you know, to the, to your question about the team members, I mean, sometimes I think it, it's probably challenging for them because they get a yes from me, they get a no from Liz or vice versa. And, and now they feel stuck, but we try to minimize that. We, yeah. you know, to the greatest extent possible, we try to create an environment here where, where the team gets our, our collaborative support and they're not defying one of us and pleasing another. It's that's, that's a toxic situation. We try to keep that to a minimum. I will tell you, personally speaking, I would never work with my wife. It would. I. I. I there are many. I, I working with my brother is hard enough. I don't think I could work with my wife. Uh, I, I. I applaud you. You are a brave man, and uh, I. I. I'll tell I can't, you, Liz, I can't. Liz brings an. Liz brings an amazing amount of energy and is really the face of the business, and that's fine with me because you yeah. wouldn't sell much with this face. And the people in this market. The people in this market knew her, know her, and and um, you know there it's a, it's 
uh, you were joking earlier about Baltimore, but the, and one of the nicknames for this place is Smaltimore, and it's a big, small town like no other major market I've seen. And and the um, the people around here went to high school together. Their kids are going to school together. They know everybody, and it was a huge part of our early success that Liz was was highly thought of in this market. And um, and so you know she's her greater strength is is inspiring members and staff in the front of the house and where I prefer to work more from behind the scenes or from a coaching perspective. And I also handle, you know, a lot of the finance and things like that. You know, Liz, Liz has been active in that role too. So some we collaborate on, but it, we've had no problem really um, dividing the, the responsibilities based on our respective strengths. So let's, let's change gears a little bit. Um, let's talk a little bit about your mentors. I mean, there are people who, uh, whether you uh, you like it or not, probably look at you and what you guys have accomplished, and I say you being you and Liz, um, and they look at you and, and, and say, look, I want to be the next Tim, right? Um, I'm, I want to be a gym class hero like Tim. Uh, when you were coming up in 96, and, and the industry's really changed a lot, and we want to talk a little bit about that later, but who were the folks that you were talking to? Who were your mentors at that time that you thought were, hey, this guy really knows what's happening. This woman really is is cutting edge. You know, that's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked that because these people deserve some some level of recognition and acknowledgement. I mean, m my original mentors in this industry were, were the industry founders, the URSA founders, uh, people like Rick Carroll, Kurt Buseman, Dale Dibble, uh, Red Larill, John McCarthy especially, Roger Ralph, Mitch Wald, those guys all taught me at one point or another, took me under their wing, shared with me some of their their secrets. I, you know, I was originally prospecting some of these people as a as an associate member of URSA, and then when I wound up running a club, um, I wound up being in the market with a number of uh, Roger and Mitch, and um, you know, those guys I worked with early on with MACMA, and and they were they were an infinite source of of wisdom and evolving business acumen for me. So I appreciate you asking that. Those guys, to this day, I reflect on lessons that I learned from them. You know, subsequent to that, in a, um, people that I ran into once I was immersed in the industry, some, some consultants are Jerry Faust, who was a keynote presenter for consecutive years at URSA conventions and started a roundtable and his partner Will Phillips. I've been a, I've been a member of both of their roundtables. Tremendous guidance and direction. Formulated a lot of my early business practices. Uh, we found that um, that a lot of the a lot of the business practices you would employ in a turnaround situation, like when you're consulting and you're trying to help somebody turn around a difficult situation, work exceptionally well for startups. And so we 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 took a lot of the lessons we learned from all of those people and plowed them into this concept of the MAC, which was a club that was designed from the start not to have these issues that it needed to overcome. Um, Klaus Hilgers is another industry consultant who, who played a major role in, in some of our business practices. And I would tell you, too, that one of, our, one of my most formative mentors is our partner, Phil Wendell, who uh, owns the Atlantic Coast Athletic Club. He's a, he started out with us, or we started with him, as a, as in a consulting client relationship. Rick Carroll actually introduced us. Uh, Phil had some clubs in Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, Rick introduced us to do some work for Phil's clubs, and he wound up becoming our partner as we presented the MAC concept to prospective investors. 
but Phil is is an incredibly talented and successful businessman. His his specialty he'd made, he he had his early business successes in customer service and travel and um, you know developed a developed a very successful operation and we learned from him all the while we were helping him with his clubs and and starting the Mac. He continues to be a mentor to this day. So let's talk a little bit about customer service because I'm I'm interested about uh, about some of the changes the industry has gone through. Um, we're all very familiar uh, with the proliferation of the uh, high volume, uh, low cost, high value, you know, however you know however you want to word it, but the sort of the the low low priced guys, if you will. How has that changed your business? How are you how are you changing and keeping up with the times? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it in my mind there's it's been a, a double-edged sword. So while the high volume low price operators have been providing access to exercise facilities, maybe to an increasing share of the market, uh, they've been hurting the industry. Um, you know, one of your questions uh, that you posed was, um, what would be your key message for advice for the future of the industry? And and my my advice would be that we need to charge what we're worth. So um, the pressure that those type of operators are putting on on operations like ours is is tremendous. Um, it's it's difficult to you know we've we were in a cycle for more than a decade of being able to raise our prices and grow our membership sales. Uh, and and then when these trends started to emerge with these high volume low price clubs, the market started putting a different uh, price to value notion in their head. And you know to this day we get compared unfavor or unfairly with with businesses that may be as as large as ours or have have a lot extensive variety like us, but not nearly the same service model. And trying to convince the market that you're worth it for that is is challenging. It's increasingly challenging. So you know the 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 best if I had to point out um, an example for the the fitness industry to follow. I would, uh, I would, I would talk about the movie industry. So in 1996, when we were opening the Mac, do you remember what it what it cost to go to a movie? Just technically, just so you know, both Lee and I were in college at that point, so we had college IDs. So I think we were a little bit jaded. But I'm going to go with that $7. being said, I, it was seven dollars, right? I'm saying for a nighttime uh, movie. Actually, I think it had just gone from maybe three to four dollars. Oh, really? And the whole video industry wow. was happening, and people were sure that the video industry was going to be the death of the of of Hollywood, right? Sure. And the blockbuster movies. Sure. And pretty soon, everybody was going to be able to see movies in their own home, and um, and you know when they raised the price from three to four dollars, it, 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 the market was outraged. I may be off by a couple of years, but in the mm -hmm. '90s, I remember that that movie <clears throat> price going from two fifty to three fifty to four fifty, yeah. and people going, "Holy cow, when is this mm -hmm. going to stop?" Yeah, you been to a movie lately? Well, I got to tell you, I don't anymore since I found out how bad the popcorn was for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you went and asked somebody that you know, maybe Lee, maybe Lee still gets out. I know you don't get out much, but maybe Lee gets out, and goes to a movie. How much does it? How much does it cost to go to a movie now? Um, you're. I mean, you're definitely in the twelve, thirteen range. Right. And is is Hollywood and that whole industry have they gotten smaller or have they gotten bigger and more successful? I'm saying they've gotten bigger. 
<laughs> I mean, the blockbusters continue to outstrip and outsell the old ones, right? E.T. is point. no longer the biggest selling movie of all time. It's probably yeah. the latest, who knows what, right? Some summer blockbuster, right? So, so in the 15 or 17 years since we started the Mac, that industry, which was, which was predicted to be DOA, is not only survived, but it's thrived, and yep. they've more than tripled their prices. Our industry has done exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. There are more multiplex theaters out there now, and people dying to invest in multiplex theaters than ever before, and, and, it's, and they're raising the prices. So the, this whole notion of these high-volume, low-price clubs is, is maybe a path of least resistance for the newest investor, but it certainly has taken the premium off of health and fitness. And it's hurt. It's in my opinion, it's it's hurting the industry. We don't need yes. to be charging less for what we offer. We should be charging more. It's a tragic, tragic mistake. And they've and so, the, the industry, if you're using that as an example, has done a great job of creating a better experience. I mean, they've taken the experience of going to a movie and they charge more because you can get better seating. You can get you can book online. You have greater theaters. You've got the 3D experience, the IMAX experience. I mean, they really have continued. Yep. Um, uh, they, they, they've thought about, you know, well, okay, when people are here, yep. what do they really care about and what can we do to keep them going back? What are things that you got, what you feel, uh, that, how, how do you feel that translates to what you do or what you guys come well, up with? Well, I think it translates. I think, I think it speaks to the wellness well. idea, right? Yeah. Clearly wellness. And, and for us, I mean, you asked earlier saying what, what we're doing to, to remain competitive in that market. And it, it's actually, and it's probably a two or three prong strategy. I mean, we've we've had to adjust our prices. We we um, not only were, have not been able to raise prices for the last several years, but we've actually reduced prices on some of our memberships in order to um, in order to stay competitive. In addition to that, we continue to try to wow the people when they walk in the door. Mm -hmm. To Lee's question, so um, you know whether it's whether it's with wellness or we haven't really gotten down to the to the meat of what makes the Mac different, what was our primary differentiator, but you know, imagine this will, this will bring that out. But, um, and you know, also with the facility, uh, just in making sure that the experience here surpasses what they get when they go to other facilities. Now, the people that come here and decide to join or the ones that decide to stay, even though they're being, you know, approached by the, 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 um, retro fitness that opened up 300 feet from us across the street or, you know, some other, somebody else who's pitching our membership, trying to get them to join the ones that stay, get it. They like the experience. They, they like the friendly staff. They like the programs, the wellness focus. So it's just taking, it's taking the rest of the market that would have maybe in the past gladly come to the Mac, uh, and, and, um, creating a, a far more competitive situation for that. So how much of the responsibility of informing and educating the marketplace falls should fall on the club themselves uh, or is that is that you think the responsibility role and responsibility of uh, of the trade association or is that something that historically nobody has taken ownership of and thus has created some of this sort of uh, confusion in in the consumer's mind well, I think it's I think it's entirely the club. I don't know that the that the trade association could affect it if they wanted to. I don't know. You know, maybe you know what other examples are there out there? Maybe the dairy association with uh, you know got milk or something. Even that doesn't do anything to justify the price of a gallon of milk. But um, I think I think that responsibility falls solely on the operator. And 
And so, you know, in our in our situation, it's on our shoulders. It's 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 up to nobody but us to try to um, to demonstrate and validate, you know, our value in the market. What are some innovative things you've done in during that experience that wows people that says, okay, this is a different experience. We're talking a different, we're having a different conversation uh, that you yeah, guys. Well, that's the biggest. That that's sort of the biggest thing. Our our USP, our secret sauce from the start has been our our determination, our willingness and determination to make sure that people actually get healthy and fit. So the the gap that we spotted that that initiated the whole that was the inspiration for the Mac was was the notion that um, uh, the industry wasn't delivering what it promised. Uh, this is an observation I had sort of early on talking to one of my early, early IT guys when I was down in Silver Spring running that club is that, you know, as an outsider sort of being transplanted into the industry, uh, I didn't set out to be a health club manager. I just found myself being one one day. And after after wrestling that, that business model for more than a year or, or two, it dawned on me that people were coming to health clubs, not just ours, but they were coming to health clubs with with some sort of a of an either an implied or or an explicit promise that they were going to be healthier, only to find uh, that it was entirely up to them. Like going to a restaurant and expecting to get served, and when you go in, you pay first, and then they tell you where the kitchen is. <laughs> and and so the get the gap there. It, well, and by the way, I, you know, in my opinion, that was validated by the dismal market share that our industry had. So at that point in time, our industry was close to 30 years old. We had 10% market share. So here are these health clubs sitting on on what was, you know, virtually everything the market might need to deter the healthcare crisis, and only one in 10 people were patronizing the health clubs. Now, granted, the whole notion of personal health and responsibility for your health was still emerging. But to this day, what it's, it's gone from 10 to 15% in, in 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we still have a pathetic market penetration, our industry. And it, that's simultaneously an indictment of our industry, uh, which has, which has gone out of its way to give itself a black eye over the years with deceptive business practices and, and, you know, billing people after they've quit or, you know, long-term contract. There's a host of things that our industry's done over the last 30 or 40 years that, that, that have contributed to our limited market share. But it also represents, in our opinion, it represented a tremendous opportunity. What if we actually made sure people got healthy and fit? And how would we go about that? Those were the seminal questions that triggered the concept of the MAC. So the short answer to your question is, what's different? What's unique about the MAC? What do people experience when they come here? They walk in the door and they very quickly sense that we want to make sure that they are healthier in 12 weeks or 12 months than they are the day they walk in here. And what what do we do? I mean, I, early on when I was floating this concept to some of my mentors, they're like, you know, this is crazy. What are you gonna What are you gonna do? You can't take the fork out of their hands. You know, you can't. How are you gonna make sure people get healthy and fit? And you know, we thought about it for a while. And my answer to that question is, we're gonna do everything we can. Because the people need it, and if, if, well, here's the question that I sort of ask in response, because I still get asked this question to this day. I've been asked this question in almost every interview that I've had over the last 15, 17 years. What if every, what if every person that ever came to a health club, ever, actually got healthy and fit in the last 40 years? What if they all got better? What if they all got healthier? What would our market share be as an industry? 
Yeah, I got to tell you, that's that's an unbelievable. I'm I'm excited just listening to you talk right now yeah. because I think that is, uh, I think that's the question that a lot of people haven't asked themselves. And you know, if I could sum up what you just said, and I will put some words in your mouth, you care. And I think part of the problem is you you care about running a good business. You care about uh, having good staff who will ultimately you care about making sure your members are taken care of. And uh, I think uh, if, a, if a, lot, a lot of folks had that same mentality, uh, including some of our members, uh, I think you would see a much higher market share. And what's disappointing to me, at least, is uh, a couple weeks ago, um, they, uh, you know, they, they basically announced that, uh, that obesity is now a disease. Um, we've asked this question of everybody. Uh, we, I'm curious to know now that people are no longer responsible for their own health in, in essence, which is what, what, what this has been told, what they're being told, how is this going to, uh, impact the industry? Uh, is it a pos and we've had both positive and negatives on this, but I'd love to know your thoughts on where you think that's going to, uh, go and, and ultimately the bigger, not to get your political thoughts on who you like or you don't like, but where you think sort of the healthcare crisis and that that uh, that intersection is going to and take if, place. If I can interject, I think this is probably a good time to speak about the Coalition for Healthy Maryland, which is something that you spearheaded, um, which seems to sort of address your, your philosophy on this. Yeah, well, there's a few questions on the table. Let me let me try to take them in some kind of order. Feel free to to rearrange if you if you see fit. But um, so to the to the obesity question, it, it, it's clearly a runaway train. We're starting to get some signals now that maybe it's abating. Maybe we're not. Maybe we're not getting obese as fast as we were. But it's still, it's still a pathetic situation and needs to be addressed. And and the the real solution. Look, the, we've we have spent 17 years uh, contemplating this question and diagnosing it in a, in a laboratory of our own operation and trying to figure out ways to make sure that people can get healthy and fit with in as few steps as possible. So, so this is something we've spent a considerable amount of time on. Ultimately, the, the difference, I mean, with the exception of a few, maybe a few extreme medical exceptions, the, 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 the difference, the gap between being less healthy and being more healthy rests in, in personal responsibility for your health. It, you, you will become healthier as soon as you decide to and you start making decisions that, that lead to better health. So what we can do as a, as a health club, and we recognize this, is to create the most supportive organization possible and the one that takes as much responsibility as we can to help people make those decisions and stay with them. Everything from and, – and we turn that into tangible actions that we train our team on. Like people early on were asking us, well, what's, what's wellness? What's the difference between a wellness center and a fitness center and things like that? You know, some of our early questions, answers to those questions were that we think the biggest difference between fitness and wellness is education. If people knew what their choices were, um, they could make better choices. Back then, they didn't even know what the better choices were. So we started with that at a simplistic level and have gone all the way up to uh, creating a database and a process where we capture people's uh, current physical activity and physical condition. We help, we help them identify their goals and milestones for improving. What are the markers they want or need to improve first? 
What can they get done in the next 12 weeks? We put a program together for them, and then we track their their progress, and we we stay in touch with them. It's almost like a case management situation. It is a case management situation. It is a case management Trying situation. Trying to do all that economically and sustain that business model in an environment where there's a proliferation of low-cost competition is incredibly challenging. Um, the you know Probably the offsetting factor is the fact that in the 15 years that all this – We've had this proliferation of low-cost competition that the obesity epidemic and the healthcare crisis has only gotten bigger. So the, the need, if not the demand, has grown uh, while the supply is sort of pulling the rug out from under, you know, uh, a higher level of service delivery, which, is, which in my opinion is what the market needs. Yeah. So um, I hope that answers some of your question. I mean, we've, we've done some – we've got a progression of steps that we've taken. It's been evolution really over the last – 17 years all we started with tickler files and five by eight business cards that would or file cards that would go in boxes where we would write down what people's goals were and track them and put you know put them in a tickler file and have them come up so we knew who to call today to see if if they were on their program or not and we since you know technology has happened and email has happened and smartphones have happened and so uh, there's been a huge sort of technology evolution without trying to stay ahead of that I'm, I'm curious first of all you said something that absolutely made my ears perk up, and, and we've heard it from a lot of people, Lee, is this idea of personal responsibility. I think it is one of the one of the commonalities between all the gym class heroes uh, really is they all have a sense of personal responsibility. And you actually even use the exact same words. I think Paul used the exact same words. It's really interesting to see that uh, that's the, that, that may be one of the common themes we learn. But what are you doing for somebody like, you know, the personal responsibility is also being answered by people who are clearly industrious, hardworking, smart people. What do you do for somebody who comes in who just they are challenged to be focused on this uh, obligation? They're challenged. Lee, this, to this, this sounds like a personal problem. Lee. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh my god! I need help, please. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think it's a, a good question. Who has I mean, this problem, right? I have a friend, and his name is Lee, but it's spelled differently. Um, no, but seriously, like I, I, you know, sustaining it. People like me, I, I get into a, a routine. I get excited to work out, and then I drift away. What are you doing to keep me in the loop so I'm better and I'm more healthy? Yeah, that's a great question. We have um, we our and taking responsibility to, too. That's the other yeah. thing. Our, our challenge is to is to find a way, a process. I don't know. Get people accuse me of thinking like this. They call me a linear thinker, and I'm always thinking about process. I don't know whether it was the early engineering education or yeah. whatever, but I, I that's the way I operate. And 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 so our challenge is to take um, thousands, if not tens of thousands, of random customers male, female, old, young, experienced, inexperienced, injured, healthy, and as they walk in the door with random goals, so we got random customers with random goals, put them into what's now three facilities with random trainers, random fitness professionals who are um, male, female, old, young, experienced, inexperienced, athletic, non-athletic, right, good with injury rehabilitation, good with athletic performance. Take all those random customers, put them with random trainers, and expect them all to get healthy on time, ahead of time, on time or ahead of time, every time. That's our mission. That Our mission is to make sure that everyone gets healthy and fit on time or ahead of time. So 
So the only way like, for us to tackle a challenge like that and to be reliable and to earn a reputation in an increasingly competitive market, well, you can go get a gym membership over there for $10 a month, but if you want to get healthy, go to the Mac. That's what we want the market to say, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you want to save money, go there. If you want to get healthy, go to the Mac. I'm okay with that. that would, we would win with that, right? So the way for us to be increasingly reliable and helpful and trustworthy is to have a process that works. I'm getting around to the answer to your question. So how do you help the person that 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 has sort of a, a fickle um, uh, personal responsibility or stick-to-itiveness, right? The process that we follow, the, the theme that we use, the mantra we use for our team is make it easy, have fun, get results. And those are the marching orders for all of our people. Now, if, if you take a 50-year-old female trainer who's a mom and this is her second career, she may apply that formula differently than the 28-year-old college graduate with uh, you know, a degree in exercise sciences who wants to work with athletes. But they can follow the same steps. Make it easy, have fun, get results. Hmm. That's how we keep people engaged. And here's why. We, we spent a lot of time studying the difference between the people who will be healthy and the ones who won't. We've got a slide we use that, that depicts the market. If you looked at 100% of the market, 20% of the market will or is already leading a healthy lifestyle. One in five. Right? At the opposite end of the spectrum, there's 20% of the market that hasn't and never will lead a healthy lifestyle. You could put a gun to their head and tell them to exercise or else, and they'll reach up and pull the trigger. They're not going. Mm -hmm. But in the middle, there's 60% that might, that has previously, they're just not now, or they would, they know they should, they just aren't, or they can't, they can't bring themselves to do it. That's three out of five, 60% of the market. Right? Our industry has probably two-thirds or three-quarters of that first market. That the, the people who will, who, who are self-led, those are the ones that are going. The people who know how to or know they should are the ones who already are. It's that 60% in the middle that we call the deconditioned market or whatever that, that we go after. And we've studied the differences between that batch of people. And it's not a homogenous group of people, by the way. They're different. There's different, um, there's different types of deconditioned people. But we've compared why they won't with the, the, the group that will. And those are the differences. The people who, who will, who are already leading a healthy lifestyle, they think it's easy. They have found a way to make it easy. They get up in the morning, they throw their running shoes on and they go. It's not hard for them. Getting to the gym every day, not hard for them, right? Buying healthier at the grocery store, it's not hard for them. They, they walk right past the French fries or the frozen pizzas. They don't even think about opening that, that case or buying the Bubba Burgers or whatever, right? It's easy for them. The people in the middle, it's not so easy for them. It, it, they've never found it easy. Um, maybe they didn't like gym class, getting back to the theme of your interviews. And, 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 you know, they were raised on macaroni and cheese or they've got kids and so it's hard for them. You know, it's just a whole host of reasons why it's not, it's not easy for them to get to a gym. It's not easy for them to afford the monthly payments. Who knows? It's a host of reasons, right? So make it easy. So that's our challenge. How do we make it easier for that batch in the middle? Answer it in a thousand different ways with convenient locations, with lower prices, with longer hours, with more diverse facilities, with happier and more welcoming people, staff who care. You know, the, we, we employ, you could come in here and in the first hour I could show you a hundred ways that we're striving to make it easier for that batch of people in the middle. Having fun, nobody will do anything for long if it's not fun. And there's a few people who will do something if it's drudgery, but 
But if you're going to capture and keep that group of people, and this may be something that your friend Lee might be interested in, <laughs> if, if you can turn it into a game, or if you can if you can just make it enjoyable, um, they'll keep coming. What we do here, each of our departments at the MAC has a mission. They all have their own independent mission. The, the mission of our reception staff, of our front, that we call them the first impressions team, is to be the best part of everybody's day. So if you come walking into the MAC, it, this keeps us from having to give a lot of direction to our receptionists. We, after we show them the ins and outs of the point of sale system and checking people in and out and all that kind of stuff, making sure we get good guest information, we say, okay, now here's what you really do at this job. Make sure that you're the hit of that person's day when they come in. And, and so that's part of making it fun. Mm -hmm. Trainers can turn the exercises into a game. Um, we have challenges. There's, there's a whole host of things we do to make it more fun. Um, you know, the entertainment systems that are on the equipment these days, it, that's been a huge evolution in the industry. But um, uh, so you, you got to make it fun. We, we, we paint above our door something that John McCarthy said in one of the pieces he did 20 years ago, and that's think of it as recess. When I'd like to find the guy who, who coined the phrase workout and just take him behind the woodshed for five minutes, <laughs> change the course of history. Whoever decided to call it a workout should be shot. Mm -hmm. Because it, it gives people the Tim, impression. This is a family uh, broadcast. I don't think we can uh, we can talk about beating people up here. <laughs> yeah, the woodshed. So well. Um, no, but the, I think it's a good point. Uh, that's to a make. great, great point. point yeah. And ultimately, people have to get results. And I can tell you that we backed into the make it easy, have fun thing. Like our mission when we first opened, our mission has always been the same. We've we've changed the way we depicted or the way we phrase it two or three times over the last 15 years, but it's always been about making sure people get results. So, so we thought initially that by focusing on making sure people get results, we would provide the credibility that our industry has lacked. That's been my answer to the question for what does our industry need? What, you know, what do you prescribe for the industry? I think we've got a credibility issue or we would have more than, than 15 out of 100 people patronizing our health clubs, right? Mm -hmm. If people thought they were going to get healthy and fit when they came to a health and fitness facility, we'd be seeing more than 15% of them. Mm -hmm. So what can we do to improve our credibility? We can make sure that people get results. If people get results when they come here, this goes to my original statement, if everybody that ever came to a health club, whether it was a Gold's or a Bally's or a, you know, I don't care what, a women's fitness club or whatever, if everybody that ever got a membership card actually got healthier, we'd have a, more, a greater market share. Mm -hmm. Double, triple, not hard to imagine. So, so um, let me ask you, have fun, get results. Those just, are, just, that's just, mantra. just from a frame of mind, and I hope I'm not giving away a million dollar idea here, but that idea of, um, instead of calling it, I'm going to the health club to say, I'm going to the fun club today. I mean, if you refer to it as a fun club, I mean, it, it's the same thing. I'm playing the recess aspect, but, uh, I think you make a great point. I think Lee's going to respond to this, <laughs> that idea, yeah. uh, incredibly, but you I think certainly that's bring in different kinds of equipment to, if you were going to have a fun club. Right. <laughs> well, you could have a back room <laughs> woodshed as we've already run into <laughs> <The> woodshed. <laughs> so I want to, I want you to talk a little bit about the, the coalition for a healthy Maryland. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, Lee talked about it a little bit, uh, earlier, but I, I'm actually curious to know how, you think that's going to help the industry as a whole, how that's going to help the individual get healthier, how this sort of collaboration is going to help everybody. And you should know my friend Lee lives in Maryland, so this will apply to him as well. <laughs> well, the, the Coalition for Healthy Maryland was really born out of a threat um, where, you know, we were vigilant and watching the legislature here, you know, we're annually, URSA keeps an, an ear on the the legislative directions of a whole bunch of states and 
one of them is Maryland. In the in the 25 or plus years that I've been in the industry in this state, we've had no less than five um, direct threats to impose a sales tax on monthly health club dues. And you know, 25 years ago, it seemed like it was a convenience. We we ended up on some kind of a list of of, uh, of luxury services is what they were considered back then. And and every time that that it's come up in a bill, these the lawmakers regurgitate this same old piece of paper, and there we are on the same line as dog grooming salons. So you know, I I don't know way back when uh, I was called on to testify with the Ursa lobbyist on, on, you know, why it was a dumb idea to tax health club dues. And five times, four times, we successfully fought that back. Well, probably four years ago now, um, the state was hurting for money shortly after the recession started. And they, there we were back on the list again. And we were actually named as one of the top two industries as a target for revenue generation in, in the, the people's Republic of Maryland. And, um, and so uh, we, we health club, some health club operators who were already collaborating on either through URSA or MACMA put their heads together and said, well, we need to, we need to pull out a bigger, a bigger sword here. We need to go after this thing. And after about eight months of trying to figure out how and, and what was going to be the best way to approach it, we were coached by a group of um, Johns Hopkins Business School fellows to, to create a coalition that wasn't isolated just to the health club industry. We needed to be bigger and broader. Otherwise, we were going to be seen as a special interest that most people considered to be a luxury. And, and so we knew it was a bigger task, a bigger endeavor, but we believed in this group. Um, and we, we wound up um, starting the Coalition for Healthy Maryland and set about, while, while at its core, it was a half a dozen um, dedicated health club operators uh, it eventually grew to include other suppliers, um, major corporations, uh, hospital systems, um, even some municipalities. We got signed, we got support signed on by some of the, the county health commissioners in the state of Maryland. We hired a lobbyist. We applied to URSA f to the fund for annual grants, which they were generous. The URSA board approved year after year, and we successfully fought back three consecutive years of sales tax threats on health club dues. And it was close. There were a couple of times it came down to uh, closed door, uh, minute, last minute uh, overnight sessions in Annapolis. But uh, the strength of the coalition, I think, really helped to deter that. And, and to, you know, I guess ultimately you just have, all you have to imagine in an environment where the price pressure is downward on health club dues, what happens if one day you wake up and you've got to charge 6% more for your health club dues, and you and not only that, you can't do a price increase. I mean, if you were going to do a 5% price increase, that could be an 11% swing in revenues for you on 70 or 80% of your gross revenue. It's huge. Most companies can't withstand it. You'd have to pass it through. What are the prospects of doing a dues increase when you just handed people a 6% surplus tax on? So, so we went at we went at the um, at the state pretty aggressively, and uh, and. And you know, I think we made a difference. So, when you're when you're talking about these, how much of the problems that the industry is having today 
are a result of the industry creating them for themselves. And you talked about it earlier about some of the deceptive business practices that were that happened back in the day. Uh, how much of that is our own is our own doing? You think? Um, well, it's hard to put an exact number on it, and I, I, I'd have to say that that I think that the intention and the actual business practices of today's health club industry is far superior to what it was 20 or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And, you know, unfortunately, there are still operators that get out there and take dues or payment in advance and then close with little or no notice. Um, so it isn't, it isn't as severe or as prolific as it was, but that taste is still in the people's mouth. Most like when we, I'll give you an example, this ties straight to the coalition. We would go and talk with our legislators and, and when we would isolate them and try to convince them, you know, lobbying basically for support for our bill, trying to get them to understand what we were trying to do, um, uh, to a person, every one of them had a horror story about somebody who joined a health club and gotten burned by it. You know, they, they didn't, they went, they, they joined, they didn't go, the health club kept taking their money. They wouldn't give it back. You know, I mean, it was it it was ironic. I wish I had I wish I'd kept a ledger of all the situations because it just gave you some sense of what we were up against. By the way, one one thing I forgot to add about the coalition is that as we started researching the laws in the state of Maryland, we were trying to find a way to reclassify health club dues and make them similar to say groceries or pharmaceuticals, things that that don't that aren't currently hit with a sales tax. We were mortified to find out that there is no such, there is no um, protected group hmm. that the state legislature can tax whatever they choose to tax. They could tax groceries tomorrow if they wanted to. Um, now they wouldn't. It would be political suicide. But there is no, there was no get out of jail free card. There was no preferred industry category that we could get reclassified as. So the only the only um, the best defense we then felt was a good was a good offense. So we went to the state to try to get uh, uh, tax credits for health club dues. So we pushed the pendulum in the opposite direction. We said we want we want a tax incentive for the people who spend their after tax dollars getting and keeping themselves healthy and fit. And through the coalition, it wasn't just for health club dues. It was any number of things that somebody might be doing to spend money to make themselves healthier. So it was a it was more of a broad approach and, and tried to take the focus off the health club industry and just put it on this focus of, of being healthy and fit. And yeah. I, you know, it, it appears like it's worked, at least until yeah. now we haven't, we haven't seen it happen. Yeah, I love the idea of playing offense instead of trying to play defense against politicians. I would imagine that that's, that's, a, that's a good tactic. But Well, the politicians use tax incentives all the time to drive behavior. I mean, whether it's mortgage interest tax deductions or first-time home buyers credit or cash for clunkers or uh, this historic preservation tax credits uh, you name it and you know the, the the Maryland 529 college savings plan they have they have those in all kinds of states so so legislators use tax incentives all the time to drive behavior and the argument we made to them was if you want people to get healthy and fit offer a tax incentive for it. absolutely now this kind of goes back to what Lee was asking earlier or you know what what do you think is the you know sort of the, the the dilemma behind the personal responsibility. I think, I think, um, I think the uh, managed healthcare is is a huge issue. This whole notion that somebody else is paying the bill for your healthcare is is at the root of the problem. Now, can people take personal responsibility for their health anyway? Yeah, and will they? Yeah, usually when 
they're when they've either lost it or they're about to lose it or they see somebody else that loses it. Mm-hmm. But short of those traumatic responsibilities, you know, it's people feel like they can kind of run their car until it breaks down and take it to the doctor and my insurance will pay for it. If health insurance were treated like car insurance, people would take better care of their of themselves. If your health insurance premium was scaled based on your physical and your physical condition, um, you'd be taking better care of yourself. And until we fix that, I predict that people will continue to abdicate their personal responsibility. Some subset of the market will, maybe will go from 15 to 20% or 15 to 25% of the people that will start taking care of themselves. There's a lot more information out there now about being healthy and fit. A lot of companies like the Mac trying to make that easier and more accessible, but it isn't going to turn the tide. Until people, until people are responsible for their actions, I guess, fiscally, I don't see that making a big change. Um, I mean, you've convinced me to open a dog grooming place, by the way, during this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me let me let me let me switch gears a little bit and and talk about uh, a little bit more about you, Tim, because I think a lot of people are curious about you uh, and and where you came from. We've asked this question a bunch, Lee. Uh, this Lee, not your friend Lee. Um, <laughs> he's he's at the gym. He's at the gym at this very moment. By the way, just just one side note: the one of the one of the sort of the chairman emeritus of MotionSoft, Benson Fine, is a member of the Mac, and at 85 years or mid 80s now, he's in better shape than my friend Lee, as a matter of fact. So <laughs> something to keep in mind. But um, we we've asked this question a lot, never quite gotten a perfectly straight answer, but I'm 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 optimistic this is our day. Tim, tell us the biggest mistake you've made in this industry. You know, I think the biggest mistake I made in this industry is is not buying the building that we're currently renting, that we've been paying a lease on for 17 mm. years. Now, I've got a list. I mean, I, when I saw that question, I, um, you know, <laughs> there's there's more than one thing that could compete for first place. But as I sat and tried to sort them all out, if I had one thing I could do over, it would have been to um, to either own or have a, a, a significant stake in this building because we've we've basically paid for this property in the last 17 years. Mm-hmm. And have you, uh, have you, did you follow your advice on your other two locations? And, and, and no, it wasn't an option. It wasn't an option with those. And we, at that point in time, we decided to put our, our working capital into the development of, of additional business ventures as opposed to additional real estate. But the real estate wasn't an option for those two sites. Here at, at, uh, at our Timonium facility, we had an option three or four times to to own um, a significant stake in the real estate, but we were never able to pull it off because the, the business was appreciating, the property was appreciating faster than we could afford the purchase price. Mm-hmm. And that was that was due to us. So we were, it was like we had a, a carrot tied to a stick and it was out in front of us. The faster we ran, it kept staying the same distance away. So, so but if, if I had to do over again, I would, I would have found some way to, to make that happen. That's a the first time we got a good, an answer, and that's well, a that's a, a really time. good one. Yeah, I appreciate it. And 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 for future uh, for future consideration, Tim, when someone asks you that, say I've never made a mistake because that's what everybody else has said. So that's the right answer. Yeah, if you want to be a true gym class hero, you've never made a you've never <laughs> made a mistake actually. Um, so, well, what about the opposite? Uh, What's the luckiest thing that has ever happened to you in the business? Good question, Lee. You know. You know, I think there's there's a, there are several, but um, the, my top two would be uh, 
finding the facility that we're in here in our Timonium facility, I mentioned that earlier that we, we looked at 30 sites over a three-year period and finally chose this one. Um, you know, that was a long three years. And there were, there were 10 locations that I, I, uh, I would have and could have jumped in and started a club in. But, you know, Liz, you asked earlier about the balance in decision-making between the two of us. Liz dug in and she kept saying, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. And so we, we would pass and pass and pass. We came on this location and it has worked for us. Uh, ever since. And the other luckiest moment was, I would say, was when our our um, then consulting client be decided to become our partner, Phil Wendell, and through over a, uh, a, a period of three or four months, he went from offering to take a small stake in our venture to eventually offering to underwrite the whole thing in exchange for a 50-50 partnership. And that, I don't, A, I don't know whether we would have ever gotten started without that, and B, it allowed us to stop concentrating on finding investment and, and focus exclusively on opening successfully. And, and that, was, that was huge. That made all the difference in the world. Um, Phil's been a great partner and somebody that has helped us immeasurably over the years, and, um, and, and we, owe, we owe everything to him. If we... If we had, if he hadn't come along, I'm not sure that we would have been able to pull all the investment together and the, the scheme that we were using. Mm. So when you uh, you said something earlier, I want to come back to it just really briefly. You said that uh, you and Liz have different risk tolerances. Uh, is was was it your? I'm assuming you had the higher risk tolerance. Is that correct? Yeah, it probably depends on the subject, but yeah, I'd say that. I mean, I would have. So I would have done some things. I wouldn't have hesitated to do some things that maybe she would. So, but you've got to balance that. So, was she? Do you think that it was her sort of more meticulous? And I don't know if that's the right word either. But her more meticulous way of of going through that prevent you know got you to pick this locate the Timonium location as opposed to one of the other nine locations that you were considering. You know, I I I would tell you that she would say she it just she waited until something felt right. So I don't know. I don't think it was a numbers or a, you know, any kind of a quantitative comparison as much as it was. Uh, yeah, this is it. You know, like you'll know it when you see it. And um, you know, we, it was the same way for both of us when we walked in. I mean, this this place was it had been an abandoned warehouse. It was greasy. It was dirty. It was dusty. There were cobwebs all over the place. Oil all over the floor. The factory uh, operation that had been in here had just moved out, and uh, the landlord had not been able to replace them. And um, and so when we walked in the facility, we saw it. It was great. And in, interesting little side note and sort of color commentary here is that we lost the building. We we borrowed money um, to put a, a down payment on it, and we had 90 days to try to raise. We were trying to raise five million bucks to buy the the property and fit it out. It was going to be it was going to be for sale at an auction, and. Ultimately, we were unable to do that. I think we raised maybe three million, four million out of in 90 days, but not enough to to launch the whole venture. So we gave everybody their money back. We got our deposit back, and then the building sold at auction, and it was gone. Some guy was going to turn it into a Pennsylvania Dutch market, and it was uh, one day we were home, sort of licking our wounds. Liz looked at me and said, "You need to go down there and convince that guy to lease us that building." <laughs> so. I said, you know what, you're right. I grabbed my blueprints and I threw I threw them in the truck and I drove back down here and two hours later I came home with a handshake and a lease. Hmm. Wow. So it, it took a while. It might have been three hours. It was a long discussion, but eventually convinced this guy to lease us a significant part of the building. 
to give us an option to lease more space within the building and ultimately an option to purchase. That happened over a period of weeks and months. When we finally opened the MAC, we got started. We negotiated a bunch of landlord fit-outs. The rest, we, we already told you about our startup. Um, our first year, we smashed all of our business triggers. We had said, and we only took a portion of the building we originally wanted to take. We didn't open with pools or anything else, just this is a dry portion, the inexpensive portion of the MAC. And we had set triggers with Phil, and we said, okay, if we accomplish this and this and this, we'll take more space, we'll do the pools, we'll come up with the additional investment, et cetera. We creamed all of those goals. And so we took the extra space um, and, and grew the club. And, uh, and when we opened our aquatic facility, the club grew exponentially. I mean, it was like holding a tiger by the tail. One of the most challenging situations we've ever been in. We, we won URSA's Sales Team of the Year Award that year. We sold 2,800 memberships in 12 months mm. and grew wow. like double the size of the club in a year. And so it, it, was a, it was an incredible time. And it had everything to do with, with uh, being able to get in this location and coming in with the wellness concept. I mean, just it seemed like the stars were lining up for us. So Very um, few people know this, Lee. Yeah. Uh, the Mac is the only place you can actually go work out and buy a quilt in the pro shop. It's a true story. <laughs> it was part of the it was part of the three hour negotiation. Amish he market has to deal. sell Amish quilts in the pro shop. In fact, yep. the shirt Tim is wearing right now was was uh, hand knitted by by the Amish. It's real convenient because you can go buy your bacon before you head home. Absolutely, <laughs> wellness, wellness, wellness. Um, uh, Tim, thanks for coming uh, for being here today and everybody listening. And this is what it's about: uh, inspirational independence. Uh, entrepreneurship. And, and that's what you're going to get at the iClubs conference, November 20th through 22nd in San Diego. Uh, this has been Jim Classieros presented by Athletic Business Magazine and the iClubs conference. Thank you both. And we'll Thanks, see you next Tim. week. Thank you, Lee. This has been Jim Class, Heroes of Fitness. <laughs> <laughs>